going to the CIA and getting to meet different people, um, certainly being at the building is something that I've always wanted to do. Obviously, I knew that they had dedicated their lives to the idea of the agency, but when you actually meet them, these people are uh, a much more diverse group than you would imagine, a much more apolitical group than you would imagine, which is really refreshing. Their job is that they're always trying to do the right thing. There are things that they may feel um, they don't want to do or feel is, is not moral to them, so they will not do that certain aspect of the mission. There's always a different way to find out the information you're trying to get. And I just, again, I, I was so uh, relieved and sort of honored to be there among a, a group of people who are so dedicated to the, to the rest of the world. Speak about this outside. Speak about this outside. Speak about this outside. Are you in your tracksuit? Oh, yeah. I noticed you haven't been wearing the tracksuit I got you for. Um... Christmas was did that, that was that the right size? Did it actually not fit you at all? It's a little small. Oh, damn it! <laughs> uh, but it, well, the thing is, is that this is a full tracksuit. This oh, oh. the black, the red thing. It's like got pants and everything. Yeah, okay. I, you, that's a nice way of saying I fucked up your gift, which you did not. Shut up. All right. Nice um, one, Brendan. It's got sexy ladies on it. Let people are on. <laughs> I thought that's why you'd like it. Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. All right. I'll I'll, I'll intro here. <clears throat> Welcome to blowback. I'm Brendan James. And I'm Noah Colwin. And you're with us again in the bonus zone. And if you like the show, if you're enjoying the show, we'll remind you, you can always get access to all 10 episodes and bonus episodes if you sign up to Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com, enter the code BLOWBACK for one month, totally free. But this week we're doing something different because we're headed to Tinseltown. It's... On Iraq at the cinema with Brendan and Noah. And uh, we're going to take a look at the world of Iraq war cinema. With us, we have the perfect man for this job, uh, my former colleague and host of Chapo Trap House, international bad boy, Matthew Christman. Let's all go to El Anbar. Let's all go to El Anbar. Let's all go to El Anbar and have ourselves a surge. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, this episode, I want to talk about a couple things. We got a bunch of movies, a bunch of examples of a rock war cinema. We're not going to list all of them, but we're going to list, I think, some of either the most important the most representative or the most bad, which are often the same thing. A couple of them we actually just, we watched together remotely the other day. And then at the end, uh, we're going to mention some movies that came out of the Iraq War extended universe uh, that we actually like. So Matt, you and I have always said that the only real or honest Iraq War drama you could make if you wanted to make a movie, you know, would be one where... Uh, you know, you're a regular person living in Iraq, and after the Americans declare war, they roll in, and these faceless American soldiers, you know, shoot a bunch of people you know, or kidnap your kid, or kill your dad, or take prisoners, and you, you know, eventually join a local resistance group, or terrorist group, as the Americans would say, and, and try to kill them and drive them out of your your, your town yeah we, um, we make those kind of movies all the time we're very good at it right but but even <laughs> the most bleeding heart american filmmaker uh would probably they were never going to make that movie either because they actually didn't want to take it that far or because they knew it could never get made and then also there's the fact that coming from an american it really wouldn't be earned honestly yes it would actually be pretty grotesque yeah. for americans to make that movie yeah uh, so that's something that would have to come from outside of America and therefore never have probably the whiff of anything as uh, the exposure of, of, of a Hollywood film. Right. But unlike the the Vietnam era, say, you know, in which we got a lot of pretty good movies coming out of the Vietnam War, pretty provocative and, and transgressive in, in their own way, that didn't happen with Iraq. And what we mainly got was the genre of shoot and cry in which we see soldiers going to war and then coming back and feeling bad about what they did. And I shoot and cry, I believe that's a 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's an Israeli term. Right? Yeah, it's the, the Hebrew phrase is Yorim V'Bochim. And it's because, you know, it, Israel is as an, in, an intensely militarized society with mandatory conscription and, you know, like a, like a like hot and cold conflicts with the Palestinians and virtually every other country around it. The country's, like, cinema is actually largely known for its military depictions. And movies featuring Israeli soldiers and their, you know, psychic trauma uh, is like, you know, you see it at the Oscars actually pretty frequently. So it, it is like very much uh, an Israeli, uh, it is a staple of Israeli cult, uh, cinematic culture. Right. But that can graft onto any hyper-militarized country's culture. So in this case, it's America's. Um, and so a lot of these are, are shoot and cry in which we see that our boys in uniform have been put through hell, but the actual sufferings or or horrors visited upon Iraqis themselves, that's always sort of window dressing, you know, or it just, it kind of flavors or seasons um, the personal suffering and trauma of the individual American soldier. Welcome to Camp Victory. Oh, Camp Victory? I this was Camp Liberty. Oh no, they changed that about a week ago. Victory sound better. All right. On that note, let's get started. The first movie here. The Hurt Locker, 2008. Oscar winner. Oscar winner, Catherine Bigelow. Six, like defeated one, like, Avatar, for God's sakes. Directed by Catherine Bigelow. And uh, she was already an established director, of course, but this this really launched her into you know, a hyper-acclaimed uh, part of, of, of her career. And she would go on to make Zero Dark Thirty with the same writer of, of Hurt Locker, Mark Bull. We'll talk about that one later. That one was co-directed and written by the CIA. But I, I watched Hurt Locker again the other day, and it definitely presents itself as, you know, the the brutal, honest, gritty confrontation with what war is really like. But it doesn't really try to say anything all that interesting, you know, or or provocative about war or, or the Iraq war in particular. Well, it's, a, you know? it's, it's like an incredibly apolitical movie in the sense that, like, there, which is what Robert Roger Ebert said about it, um, and I thought was like pretty spot on. But it's it's not a movie that like actively engages with anything resembling a political question. Um, in fact, like it seems to just kind of treat like like what Bigelow and uh, seems to be mostly interested in is just sort of this vision of war as like a psychological, not even like a trauma, but like uh, almost like a, a compulsion. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the the, the closest thing to a point that movie had that I was able to tease out of it when I saw it. I only saw it when it came uh, in theater when it came out when I was younger. Uh, was that it was some sort of commentary on the way that like, Americans process war, like through spectacle, and the way that like the guy played by Jeremy Renner is sort of subconsciously reenacting movies. Uh, because that's like how he understands like what he's supposed to be doing there. And then there's the pretty facile thing about war being a drug and him being addicted to it. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's very standard in that it is laserly focused on like the psychological terrain of the, the troop. Yes. Like it's an abstract concept. I mean, that's the thing that we're definitely going to return to is this idea of also like having this trauma, having these experiences and then choosing in these movies so frequently it seems to go back to war hold on i got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the cop yeah she's got a grenade she's got an rkg russian grenade she's saying to the kid you say a woman and a kid the possibly even more iconic movie than the hurt locker uh and matt and i did an episode about this a long time ago on chapo is, of course, American Sniper. Oh, yeah. 2014, uh, Clint Eastwood directing, Bradley Cooper stars in it, as Chris Kyle, the uh, everyone's favorite master sniper. And uh, I guess, you know, it's a film about what he did over there and then his struggle to, I don't know, reintegrate into society after. Not really. It's more a struggle with that he can't be there all the time yeah. killing all of the Iraqis. I actually, I mean, I hated American Sniper when I saw it, and I still think that, you know, as a political thing, it is a rancid and awful and reifies all the worst lies about the war in Iraq. But having seen Richard Jewell, which I think is actually brilliant, uh, and I think he's trying to do similar things to American Sniper, I realized that, that American Sniper might not have been this malevolent. It might have just been a failure. Based on, basically, 
uh, Eastwood picked the wrong guy to make a movie about uh, because Chris Kyle was a psychopath. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy bragged about how he like he, was, li- he, he lied had, if repeatedly. <laughs> if he had well, I mean, beyond the fact that he was a compulsive liar who made up shit like shooting people from the roof of the Superdome and and killing uh, uh, killing would be carjackers in a in a gas station, and then the cops show up and they just let him go yeah. because he's just like a special <laughs> operative or something. Yeah. Uh, to but I mean, in his book, he claimed to shoot more people when he was down in the competition for like most confirmed kills among the other seal snipers i mean that's just admitting to being a serial killer yeah. uh and i think whatever eastwood's trying to do with and i think he does it way more successfully with richard jewell to investigate like male expectations in america and like how masculinity is sort of performed and and, and like the limitations of that and and how it's like really only allowed for certain people in certain places the most interesting thing that could have been about american sniper but it just gets drowned out by the by just the high high level high volume political uh operation that that uh movie is a part of yeah well i mean you know let's be honest we know clint eastwood is a republican dumbass yeah but he's not like a warmonger is the thing no like you remember his big deal when he talked to the to the uh talked famously talked to the chair uh at the at the rnc in 2012 was about obama not getting out of afghanistan yeah well but i mean at that point anything that obama was doing was bad de facto but even if clint eastwood is a anti-war conservative that's a certain type of anti-war thing where you know you you don't want to waste any more valuable american life for these savages over well, there well it all it all breaks it all it all stems from a uh, from a fundamental inability to extend humanity to uh, Middle Easterners. Yeah, where where the the neocon uh, desire to invade and dominate was based on a dehumanizing paternalism. The old school conservative desire to get out was based on like an America first style. Yeah, like thing. the most the closest thing to anti war sentiment you get in American Sniper is these people aren't worth it. Yeah, exactly. Like it accepts as 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 a, as a fact that they're doing some sort of job of of building a nation there and not dismantling one on purpose, which right. is what they actually did. Right. Uh, and that says they're not, they don't deserve our largesse because they're not civilized enough. Correct. What do you think you're doing here, Miller? You're off reservation for a reason. What is it? I came here to find weapons and save lives. It's a little more complicated than that. Well, not to me, it isn't. Next up, Green Zone. 2010. Green Zone, my favorite episode of 30 Rock. Um, it, it is, uh, th- this one's an interesting one to me. Uh, Noah and I watched it uh, not so long ago. It's basically Jason Bourne goes to Iraq because it's directed by Paul Greengrass, who did Bourne Supremacy and stars Matt Damon. Matt Damon plays a military officer on the ground in Iraq who's hunting for the WMD. We've invaded and we've occupied, now we're hunting for the, for the weapons. But he's not finding any because they lied. They lied. And he begins to unravel a big conspiracy, the, the, the conspiracy of how we got into Iraq. And that sounds like a decent action, you know, anti-war movie. But the problem is, is that this movie wants to tell you the truth about how we were lied into Iraq. But to spice it up and sex up the action content, it invents a fake conspiracy that that is not based in reality where this like general gave us the bad intel and we wanted to like we promised that he'd be put in charge after and then that Matt Damon has to hunt the general and that kill him but also fight the government and it's like it's none of that is real none of that's true as as you know from listening to the show so it's this attempt to tell the truth about how we got lied into a war with with fake with a fake answer and that would actually be cool and interesting if it was satirical, but it's played completely earnest, which is a very odd project to me. Uh, it's so funny about it is, is that it was ostensibly based on the book uh, Imperial Life in the Emerald City. Yes, by Rajiv Chandrasekharan. Yes, and that book is about the, the, the absurd bureaucratic situation where you had a bunch of Heritage Department, Her- Heritage Foundation teenagers trying to recreate the Iraqi state from scratch. Yep. Uh, and that and I remember when I heard that book was being adapted, I assumed it was going to be some Alexander Payne type 
thing, you know, or like Mike Judge, like a lot of fluorescent lights <laughs> and and uh, and uh, lanyards and just these absurd conversations happening, you know, with like fucking car bombs going off in the background. Uh, but and but the, as soon as Paul Greengrass got involved, that kind of went out the window because it had to be an action movie, and so the 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 what so it, it really does tell you it the, the greenso is a good example of how uh of how art really is incompatible with <laughs> with mainstream uh where with uh with like politics uh and specifically how like hollywood tropes sort of demolish any intent you might have because uh jesus christ uh you watch that movie do you really come away thinking about the horrible lies that went into the war in iraq i mean it's a it's an action film yeah it's it's just it's just he's shooting Iraqis basically. Yeah. Uh, it's just like they're the lying Iraqis, I guess, or something. Well, it's it's also like they're doing like it's it's like it's doing all the same like ripped from the headlines like SVU shit where yeah. like uh, the all like this is all a scheme to help prop up like a U.S. Uh, like you know like puppet politician who resembles uh, like Ayatollahi who was then the like in, uh, like like lead like. Interim head of prime the, minister, uh, right? He was the interim prime minister, and it just doesn't like it's. It's obviously all very, um, it's all very stupid and poorly uh, conceived. A couple of things I remember about Green Zone. Uh, one, there's a Judy Miller character played by I think Amy Ryan, and in the beginning, it's like real life where she was responsible for publishing all of the junk intelligence. But then at the end, when Matt Damon gets the secret flash drive of evil war crimes he leaks it to the judy miller character so that she can go write it up and get the exclusive it's like why would the why the fuck would you give yeah it's so it's so funny the the the, the, the hot spicy intel that reveals the truth to that person but that's part of what like the tropes of these kind of movies are all about finding the bad apples yes. finding the bad actors within systems that are being that are worthy and are being actually defended by the hero yes because it's the bad people within it that are making the bad decisions and doing the evil and you got to get them out all these movies are twisted into a bad apple story there's never really an institution that is bad um it's always some rogue guy like greg kinnear which really does not convey the iraq war deal no it's sort of accurately. the opposite really yeah uh, and speaking of that, though, there's a CIA guy. The CIA is the hero of the movie, uh, funnily of enough. Course. And it's Brendan Gleeson with his Irish accent in, <laughs> in the CIA, which I like. Well, that's always Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. He's like, he's like Liam Neeson, and he has never successfully conveyed an American accent in any film, no matter where he's supposed he to be He played fucking Churchill, probably with an Irish accent, particularly <laughs> I mean, grotesque. You know what? That would have been an own, yeah. and I would have respected him if he did that. Sure. Because, the, honestly, any Irish guy who plays Churchill, I'm like, oh, what the hell? You're a cuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're cuck. Unless you, unless you give he, Churchill he an He unleashed the black and tans on you, for God's sake. Show some self-respect. Although nothing will beat, the, uh, this is a total tangent, we can cut it, yeah. but nothing will beat the indignity of Richard Harris playing Oliver Cromwell. I know, I know. That is, <laughs> when we were talking about the, <clears throat> with the Judy Miller thing, like he, the same reporter that, that does all the bad reporting gets the big scoop at <laughs> yeah, the end. She's going to do the good reporting. It reminds me. Do you remember when we interviewed Tim when we had Heidecker on the show, and he said he was watching Homeland, and it's a show where like all the all five people who are important to the world security are in the same block and like all know each other. Yes. There's just five people at any given moment who are doing the main thing that's happening, and they all are have each other's phone number. Yep. On a mission to find the facts. The vice president has received a report concerning the purchase of material to build nuclear weapons. We need to get in close. They turn to her husband for answers. It is my opinion. A sale that size could not have happened. I have teams in the field. They're all saying the same thing. But when the truth was made public... What do you think the White House wants to hear, huh? There was no nuclear program. We need to change the story. They made her pay the price. Valerie, your name is in the paper. It's your CIA agent. This might have been the worst one that we had. From now on, we're talking about ones that we've watched. We we Google hung out the other day and watched a couple of these. This one might have been the worst. Fair Game. And, 2010, directed by Doug Lyman, uh, who did Swingers and... Um, and Born Identity. And Born Identity, yeah. Because Greengrass did the sequels to Born Identity, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. 
Lyman did the first one. This was a movie dramatizing the Valerie Plame affair. And I believe on our show, we mentioned it very much in passing because uh, the Valerie Plame affair was, uh, frankly, one of the most uh, overexposed and overemphasized elements of the liberal account of the Iraq it war. It was the first Russia case. Yes, we'll, we'll get to which that. Which is why anyone who lived through that era should have been immunized against ever caring about it, which means that anyone over the age of like 30 who cared about Russiagate, it's like do you what happens to your brain every night? Does do the, do, the, do, the, do all the wrinkles you get just pop back <laughs> like 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 a fucking Tupperware container? Yeah, like a uh, stress ball. Yeah. Uh but for those who were too young maybe, let's recap the Valerie Plame affair, because we'll be summarizing the movie by doing it. Uh, Valerie Plame, played by Naomi Watts in the movie, was an American CIA agent, and she was a power couple with a former U.S. ambassador to Niger, who's played by Sean Penn in the movie, Joseph Wilson. And after we invaded, Joseph Wilson blew the whistle in the New York Times on the Bush administration saying, I was ambassador in Niger. Saddam definitely was not looking for uranium there, which was the accusation. Uh, in retaliation for blowing the whistle, Dick Cheney and his monster squad uh, leaked Valerie Plame's identity as a CIA agent and blew her cover. And it was a big scandal. And the libs loved it because these were two patriots who were being harassed and put in danger by the unpatriotic Bush administration. What did you guys think of Fair Game? Woo! Roller coaster ride of excitement. Uh, the thing that most struck me about war, about uh, about Fair Game is it came out in 2010, right? Yeah. I, that makes it the single most inessential film ever made. I, I, I saw the sequel, the 10-year-later sequel to Zombieland yes. like a week before, and I remember thinking, this, is, this did not need to be made. I cannot think of any movie. And then I saw this, and I was like, I'm sorry, Zombieland 2. Mm-hmm. Because specifically, the reason this is inessential is because for the libs who make up the audience for a thing like this, like when a guy like Bush is president and now when a guy like Trump is president, like your aesthetic preferences are for things that like get you mildly outraged. Like that's based, that's like the, uh, uh, that's the emotion you're chasing with your, with your entertainment of choice right. is, is getting riled about the awful president who you're so mad Righteous at. indignation. Righteous indignation. But that's only, that only obtains as long as they're in power. As long as soon as the, as soon as Bush left the White House, and certainly as soon as like the whole like because th- this whole deal at the time everyone was excited, including dumbass young me, because yeah. we thought, oh, they're all going to jail because of this. Like, yeah, Bush got reelected in two thousand four, even though he lied to start a war that killed half a million people. But oh, yeah. we're going to get him on a technicality, and then yeah. it never happened. Uh, Scooter Libby got indicted and then never even spent a day in jail. It was all a huge waste of everyone's time and attention. Uh, and everyone, by 2010, that's pretty clear. And more importantly, by 2010, you've been two years of Obama. When you're in power and you're in a liberal in power, you want your uh, uh, entertainment to have like a smug uh, sort of uh, uh, noblesse oblige about it because now right. you're in charge again. Like that, that, that angst that powers you when you're watching stuff during the bad presidential administration, well, that, I mean, that feeling goes away. So what exactly is fair game supposed to evoke in its audience? What would anyone get out of it? Just like, oh, remember when we were mad about Bush two years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the movie reflects that sort of lack of, of purpose because it is probably the most boring movie that we watched. Whoa, they, so they were all bad. But it was it was it was too well made for it to be funny uh, and like bad, but it was also uh, you know just a slog. Brutal. But there are some funny things in it just because of how uh, pedantic it is. Like there's a scene where they're in the kitchen, Naomi Watts and Sean Penn, and they're both government operatives. It's the whole premise. But they're talking about you know this damn illegal war. And uh, one says to the other over their shoulder, and of course, it requires more than one source to verify an intelligence claim. It's like, (laughs) yes, she knows that. She works in the government. And there is a funny scene at the end. Uh, It's a lot like the newsroom, Jeff Newsroom scene in the pilot of the newsroom. Uh, where they're campaigning, you know, for for their reputation at that point, and Sean Penn's having lunch or something, and 
a lady comes up to him and says, I think your wife is a damn liar. And he's like, you fucking bitch. <laughs> and then he screams at her for like five minutes. It's, that was pretty funny. And your wife is a traitor okay, and a fantasy. Okay, leave my table. How dare you talk about my wife? You don't know her. You don't know me. Now leave now. Very nice. You gentlemen She's should know leave. you're having I lunch with a traitor. Oh, please don't. No, please. Did, did, did you hear okay. the way that this man just... Shame on you. You call yourself a reporter. Shame on you. You're nothing but a self promoting hack but um yeah just not very good some interesting people popped up roy from the office i think you said yeah. that popped up <laughs> also uh, scooter libby is played by the guy who plays the shitty cop with the bad hair uh the, sh- the sheriff the bad sheriff yeah, from justified. justified um yeah because uh, wasn't yeah. her name actually leaked by cheney's dude well, no, I mean, I mean, a couple people leaked it at once yeah. because Richard Armitage, who is Powell's uh, yeah, oh, that's deputy, right. Powell's guy, Powell's guy, who's he, like considered like one of the good guys. Yeah, right? but because I don't know. He went, like he was sort of pushing yeah. against the invasion. Yeah. Also, uh, we haven't we forgot to mention this in the entirety of our of our main episodes, but um, possibly the most disturbing thing that I discovered in our research that, to my knowledge, has not been reported on, is that uh, Richard Armitage is the grandfather of young sheldon (laughs) the actor who plays young sheldon i think his name is like ian armitage uh that's that's richard armitage's (laughs) grandson and it it goes deeper than you think people so read you know i have the documents um i've seen the documents folks okay and these are demons goblin scum let the bodies hit the floor let the bodies hit the floor signed up thinking i was going over there to take my country Everything turned out so different than we thought. Next up, Stop Loss. Stop Loss! Stop Loss! 2008. Uh, This was an MTV films movie uh, that was supposed to rap with teens about issues like Iraq. And uh, I guess, you know, you could call it a a good example of shoot and cry. No, I don't agree with that. Oh, you you think Home of the Brave? They don't cry at all. They only cry because they're getting stop lost. Channing Tatum cries eventually. A little bit. But it's not um, about like the trauma they experienced. Kind you're of. right. I mean, it's, like, it's about the trauma, but it's really about the idea that they're being forced to go back. All right. No, no, no. Okay, I cause... have a theory about what the plot of the movie really is. Wait, hold on. Let me do a basic plot Fine. outline. We're all getting so riled up about stop loss. Stop loss! It's because it's such a damn provocative film. But uh, <laughs> So stop loss was a early MTV films movie to kind of show out of the gate that they could make quality films and whatever, expand their brand. And it stars Ryan Philippe, who has a terrible Texan accent. With a shortage of guys and no draft, they're shipping back soldiers who's supposed to be getting out. Uh, And Channing Tatum, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Abby Cornish. Uh, they all the guys were in the war together, and now they're home. They're they're back, and they're, and they're telling their war stories. But clearly, some of them are you know, they're, they're they're not all okay. Ryan Philippe gets stop lost. He got stop lost. I don't think any of us caught the name of Ryan Philippe's character, so we just started calling him stop lost. Yes. So stop lost. Private stop lost gets uh, stop lost by the, by the military. Brandon Leonard King. Yes. You have orders to report to the first brigade. <laughs> not me. I'm getting out today. You leave on the 22nd, shipping back to Iraq. You've been stop lost. If you don't know what stop loss is, and I'm talking about not the main character stop loss, but the process of getting stop lost, stop loss is when you are basically involuntarily committed to go back uh, to continue your tour. Yeah. You've come home, but that, but you got to go It's back. also called, a, the more common name for it is the backdoor draft. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it's basically, but that sounds like a different kind of movie. Fine print <laughs> in your contract. That you sign up and it's yeah it's four years but they have the it, it's in there a lot of people don't realize that when they sign up that they have the authority to bring you in for another four if they if they declare if they think it's necessary right and so um, I think at the end of the movie they told us through 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 the text that comes up at the end uh, eighty thousand troops were stop lost I don't know how many of them were uh, tried to defect but that is what the plot of this movie is is that stop loss says. I, there's no way I'm going to be stop loss. Hell so no, he you're not stop lossing me. 
he he and his and his commander shakes his fist in the air and yells stop loss so he gets in touch with like a jewish lawyer in new york and figures out a way to <laughs> <That's> like <true. laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry is this a movie like, I, I i whatever the movie is it's not like that no it's um, that guy who looks like saul rubinek but it's yeah, not saul but he, like it's so that irish he calls saul a lawyer in new york and he's like ah, like oh listen listen mr mr lawyer sir i'm just a simple country boy and i didn't read the print in my contract and blah 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 yeah. and then they come up with a scheme to get him like they come up with a scheme basically to give him a new identity outside of the country um yeah but th- but that's at the end of the movie because most of the movie is he's on the run with abby cornish who's that sh- you know she's kind of falling for him over channing tatum and uh he's kind of just roaming tr- he's trying to get to the border he's trying to go to canada yeah yeah is, is, is it Canada? Or no, Mexico. Right. He's, well, trying, Mex- he's trying to get to a border so he can de-stop lossify. <laughs> His car gets broken into, and then uh, he tracks down the, the gang members who did it, and then he, like, shoots one of them and calls them Hajis. Yeah. So it's, well, like, so trying to do flashing. that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's flashing back. So then at the end of the movie, he's at the border, and... His mom's there, and, and Abby Coroner, she's basically now his girlfriend, is there. And he's going to cross, but then it's a hard cut. And then the final scene is him going back to Iraq. Yeah, he would rather go to Iraq than Mexico. Because I think he's... Because <laughs> I think exactly. he says... That was exactly the joke I was going to make. I think, I think the idea is that he is suffering from PTSD and that going back won't help it. You know, that's basically yeah. the idea is that he, he needs... He needs to be home, and he needs maybe some therapy or something. He doesn't need to get stop lost. It came out the same year as Hurt Locker, so it was very much in vogue for this to be the trajectory. And, and the one thing that it has very that's emblematic of a lot of these Iraq War films is because they were very afraid to directly uh, criticize the war effort for fear yeah. of saying that you don't support the troops. Yep. So they would find specific things about the war that were unjust or, or incompetent to criticize, uh, which I guess, I mean, honestly, it just feels like there, it just feels like self-congratulation at that point. And, and, and like, if you watch this movie, the main takeaway of the thing is the main injustice of the Iraq war was not lying to kill a a million people. It was stop lossing some guys. Yep. That yes. was the most real of whom crime did of not Iraq, defect doing stop losses most represented by stop loss the hero yes. the and Pierce made the movie she wrote the movie she her initial Kimberly Pierce her yeah. big breakout uh role or like her big breakout film was directing Boys Don't Cry uh and then she didn't make another movie for a long time and like she did a lot of they did there was a very big like stop loss had a it was a box office flop but it got a very big press cycle and like if you just google the movie in the name of any publication they probably had an interview with Pierce um, and you know, one of the, one of the ones that, uh, with it that I remember is that she talks a lot about like, you know, how her brother was in the military and she wanted to write a movie that really reflected the experience of veterans. And because she felt that like they were marginalized or whatever, and that she couldn't, you know, she like wanted to make, you know, like she wanted to make like another kind of like issue movie, like in the same way that, uh, boys don't cry was. Hey kids, and, there's a thing going around called stop loss. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Well, so this is hey, you know, uh, there's a lot of things on MTV that are dope. I'll tell you what isn't dope: stop loss. <laughs> well, and that's sort of like how this how this uh, came to it. Like, so, and it's like feels like very transparent um, that this was written, and she, you know, very actively ran away from describing it as an anti-war movie. And she instead talks about it as that, like, this is an authentic movie. This is a movie that's actually about the experiences of you know soldiers, and it's fucking real and it's raw. And honestly, like, you know, like you guys are pussies for not being able to handle it. Just me just saying you can't handle this raw shit that the troops are feeling. I'm me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think stop loss is a good is a good uh, example of that of, of that approach, which was re- really common. But with none of the budget of Hurt Locker and none of the acting. Abil- I mean, Channing Tatum was fine. You know, I like Channing Tatum. Um, but. Uh, kept waiting for him to, to dance a little bit and do just break out some dances, and it never happened in the film. I would like to know what happened to you. You treat a patient, you're supposed to feel something. Well, I don't feel anything. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Judas like over there! Are you against the war in principle or because I was part of it? Both. 
All right, last in our uh, little sampler here, uh, and, and and the last one we watched was probably my favorite that we watched. It was called Home of the Brave. Yeah, came out in 2006. A, this was a classic uh, uh, stinker when it came out uh, in yeah. terms of obviously being a bomb and also being just brutally bad. And the reason that I say that this is more, to me, evocative of the shoot and cry than yeah. stop loss oh, is yeah. because there is literally a scene in this movie where 50 Cent, who plays a troop who in the beginning of the film accidentally shoots a uh, a, a woman in a hijab during a home incursion, mm-hmm. the film inner, interlays slow motion footage of him shooting the woman in Iraq with him, his, his close-up face at his therapy session while he's crying. Yeah. So he's actually crying <laughs> about the shooting. Let's let's back up. This is you're right. That is emblematic of Home of the Brave. It was directed by Erwin Winkler and he was a like kind of a legend in Hollywood just as as a producer. He produced some of the, you know, Elvis Presley movies and then produced Rocky and I heard they shoot or um I heard they paint horses. I <laughs> They, they shoot, they, they shoot horses. horses, don't they? I heard um, you paint horses. <laughs> to look like zebras. Um, but this was his directorial effort. I don't know how many movies he directed before this, but uh, he clearly thought, I'm in old age and I need to make my anti-war movie that makes a bold statement before I die. So much like Stop Loss and much like uh, Hurt Locker, this begins with a bunch of guys as, as soldiers in Iraq. <clears throat> and... Um, I almost said Ryan Philippe because these are starting to bleed into each other. But there's one, an actor I don't remember. No, it's, you don't remember him because I looked at his Wikipedia and he was in literally nothing else. Okay, I'm going to call him Soldier Man. And he is our main character along with 50 Cent, Chad Michael Murray, uh, Jessica Biel, and Sam Jackson. They are all in Iraq at the start of the movie. And they only have a couple days left before they go home. Uh, they, Much like the first scene of Stop Loss, they all get lured into an alleyway and get, uh, get ambushed. Soldier Man watches Chad Michael Murray die, and he, he was his best friend, so for the rest of the movie, Soldier Man is tortured over how he couldn't save his friend. 50 Cent, as Matt just said, first uh, wastes an unarmed woman and then falls and breaks his ass. He breaks his uh, ass, yes. They're, they're running, and then he falls, and he lands on his ass, and he goes, ah, and he screams, my ass, and yeah. he's broken his ass. He broke his movie. damn ass. And so... Uh, they they're experiencing their their trauma and then nearby like they're not part of the same unit Jessica Beale is a maintenance uh unit she gets blown up and and by a kid who was eating a lollipop so she didn't shoot him but then it turns out she should have shot him he not only had the lollipop but he also had a phone that detonated the bomb and she loses uh her hand uh and uh, Samuel Jackson plays a doctor uh, and he a, a military doctor and he's saving her in real time in Iraq all these characters go back home except for Chad Michael Murray R.I.P. and the rest of the movie is them failing to acclimate back into civilian life so let's attempt to go through these different subplots because the movie is very very bad it, did, it, it clearly did not get that much of a budget but let's see here Soldier Man wants to be a cop no no I he think. doesn't want to be a cop oh he doesn't really want to he be a wants, cop but his dad wants him to he be a wants cop. to he he is struggling with like the fact that like his his like boy died his dad who works who we believe like works in an auto garage and we and and but like it's never like and it's played by um uh uh isn't he played by Kieran Hines or am I misremembering? No, yeah, you're no, thinking of Stop Loss. Stop Loss's dad yeah. is played by Kieran Hines. God fucking yeah. damn it. These movies Yeah, all... these two movies, these really blended together, and we didn't even watch them on the same day. You're right. That is Stop Loss's dad. But say, but say Kieran Hines, it doesn't matter. Uh, who the fuck cares? But like Soldier Man um is like he wants to be a cop, but he doesn't act No, he doesn't want to be a cop. God damn it. He doesn't want to be Jesus a cop. Jesus Christ. He he doesn't he doesn't want to be a cop, but his dad keeps saying to him, like, oh, you know, I hooked you up down at the station, you know, they'll they'll give you a different day for the yeah. exam. Just go in whenever you're ready. And he's like, ah, oh, no, I don't wanna I don't wanna do that. Uh like or maybe I'll like fine, I'll do it. It's a and law then, enforcement community. <laughs> and he's just like he's like all fucked up about it. Uh and he's not really his struggle for the rest of the movie, I mean it's not like it, it kind of just takes a back seat, right? And it becomes yes. he becomes kind of like a springboard up until the very end when he makes a fateful decision. Yeah, his plot becomes subservient to everyone else. But I just remembered that 
Christina Ritchie is in this movie. Yes, Christina she's, Ricci. She's the widow of Chad Michael Murray, and she begins like a meaningful commiseration sort of dynamic with right. Soldier Man, oh, but then I we forgot. never see her again. So Soldier Man is in the background. His main function, let's go, let's go to the 50 Cent uh, plot here, because 50 Cent comes back home. He broke his ass in Iraq, and he's not doing so good. And he, I think there's a scene where like, He's hitting. He's trying to get some woman to go out with him, maybe someone he had a relationship with before, but she doesn't want to. And then he ends up taking that woman hostage and doing a hostage situation. And Ryan Philippe, shit, it's not Ryan Philippe, it's Soldier Man. Stop lost, Junior. Okay, Soldier Man shows up and talks him down, but then uh, for no reason, 50 Cent says, he's like, all right, so drop the gun. We can all go home. And then 50 Cent says, I like my gun. I'm not going to drop the gun, but I am going to get up and walk out. But then he not only doesn't drop his gun, he stands up and then keeps pointing the gun at Soldier Man. So all of the police snipers smoke his ass and he dies. And then the hostages inside of the place that he took uh, don't run out screaming yeah, for some reason. They're literally just stay. still sitting still. Even They stay there watching his friend grieve over this man who kidnapped them and wanted to possibly kill them. 50 Cent was not a good actor in it, and it, it is unclear why uh, he was in the movie at all, given that his character really doesn't have anything to do except that one scene. I mean, it, does, it is like pretty funny that, like, I mean, you know, you bring in 50 Cent to, uh, into this movie to help market it or whatever, uh, and what you end up writing for him in the plot is that he breaks his ass in Iraq, and mm-hmm. he takes a bunch of hostages, and then gets shot because he and kills an innocent woman. Yeah, and, oh yeah, and he kills an innocent woman. Like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it rules. Um, okay, we have to talk now about the Jessica Biel. <laughs> oh my character, god, uh, because it's it's problematic. Um, she she in the first scene we see her hanging with all the other guys in the base in Iraq and Matt uh you had read a review about this uh earlier so you knew to look out for this but there is a a shot in which she's shooting hoops outdoor hoops outdoor summer uh, hoops outdoor summer hoops and there's a slow-mo close up of her hand shooting the ball <laughs> um and it is uh, foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing. It's it's a it's a cinematic artistic technique. You might not. It's be pretty. With. It's pretty deep. Um, because five minutes later, the child with the lollipop that she should have killed ki- blows her up, and she loses her hand in in the war. Okay, so then they're all back home, and her individual you know arc begins, and it's there's a shot of her, a scene of her. Um, she has a prosthetic hand now, and she's trying to button her jacket and she she can't do it because she's not used to the the new to to her new prosthetic and it's a little obvious and you're like oh okay we we get it you know but you're thinking this is going to be a something humming along in the background of her readjusting to life or you know like a a, a shot like this is going to serve its purpose very next scene her career at home is gym teacher and she's walking onto the basketball court or whatever, and she has a bunch of stuff, and she drops it because of her hand. Next scene, she's making dinner or something for her kid, and then she drops something because of her hand. Next scene, she's at the doctor's office, and the doctor is like recommending some new treatment or or um, technology or therapy or something. She hands her a brochure. Jessica Biel drops the brochure because of her hand. And it just becomes clear that her entire story her arc in the eyes of this this movie and this filmmaker the script is just her not being able to do things because of her hand it's needless to say two dimensional yeah. uh and it, it it's it's offensive the only other part of her story is that she's broken up with her boyfriend because she's changed now that she's back from Iraq but he doesn't want to break up and there's tension and and he confronts her and she says look it's over and he says I guess it only takes one good hand to push someone away. Yes. Uh, also, uh, parenthetically, uh, the boyfriend looks like a penis in a hat. Yes. He's like a dis- very disturbing, uh, like very pale, grub-like man. He looks like, um, who's the guy in uh, Reanimator? Uh, Jeffrey Combs? Yeah. He but looks like, like a him. Totally hairless he, Jeffrey Combs. He looks like him in From Beyond when he's lost all of his yes, hair and has the pineal exactly. gland coming out of his head. Yeah. And at the very end, her um, 
her storyline is wrapped up because she gets laid and everything's basically fine after that. Yeah. Uh, she gets a new boyfriend and then she's fine. Yeah. That leaves us with Sam Jackson's story, which is my favorite story in the uh, anthology. He begins the movie kind of the most grounded of anybody because, you know, he's a doctor and he's got a good life at home that he's returning to. But he, there's a couple scenes early on where he's sort of zoning out during family gatherings or, or friends or whatever. And they establish that he has some tension with his son, who, who's, a, you know, kind of acting out. But uh, that's all sort of just in the background until halfway or even three quarters of the way through the movie. He's at dinner with his wife and she just says, all of a sudden she says, you know, you've been drinking a lot more lately. And all of a sudden he has this old fashioned in his hand and he's like, I don't care. And he slugs it down. And that's just, we, there's no precursor to that. All they needed was like a shot of him in surgery or whatever, you know, between, between surgeries and taking a slug. Yeah. They, they don't do it. So then at the, for the rest of the movie that, that remains, he's, he's a raging alcoholic and he on Thanksgiving, the final scene with him is on Thanksgiving. He drives home drunk and invites like the yard workers in to have Thanksgiving. And then on a dime, he looks over and his son has a lip, a, a lip piercing and he immediately grabs his son and throws him on the Thanksgiving table and rips the lip piercing out of his son's face. He mutilates his son's face. And then the son is bloody and screaming and Sam Jackson runs upstairs and gets a gun. And then his wife comes in and says, please don't kill yourself. And then he does Which also, let's be clear. So your husband has just lipped the ring out of your son's face. He runs upstairs and grabs a gun. The idea that he was like the immediate uh, focus, that it was like, oh, he's going to kill himself and not much more plausibly that he was about to murder his whole family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the ending is Soldier Man is talking over a montage and we see Jessica Biel at a soccer game, like a kid's soccer game. And she's attending with her new boyfriend that gives her life complete meaning. Uh, and it's the soccer game of Samuel Jackson's son. And after the game... Uh, there's all the problems between him and his son are gone now. Everything's fine. Yeah, yeah, everything's everything's fine now. And people uh, just needed they needed a chance to heal. Yeah, but I mean, especially the kid. Yeah, he really needed a chance to heal. <laughs> yeah, his lip. <laughs> um, but then it fades to black, and there is a quote from Machiavelli <laughs> <laughs> that is really uh, the font is too big, and it it just looks bad. Sun Tzu Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really. Really bad, and that ends, and so ends Home of the Brave. But that is so um, much. That was so much more interesting and entertaining a movie mm -hmm. than anything else that we encountered. Yeah, because it it just it was schlock. It it was shot like a like a comedy movie. Well, it's a Hallmark movie. Is like it, it it's a Hallmark movie. Yeah, it's just the color grading and and the the flat lighting. It all just looked. You just like, wish it would go off the rails more because at the end everything always everyone just has a hug and they yes, like, cry yes, and exactly. then they're fine. Just a couple more stray observations about. It. Uh, Home of the Brave as we close out on it. Uh, this one's a little nerdy, but you know, no one. I just did a podcast about the history of the Iraq War. Cut us a break. Uh, there's an Iraqi translator telling the American soldiers about like Iraqi history, and he says, "Yeah, our revolution in 1956." And I was like, "It was 1958." The Iraqi guy just got his own revolution wrong. <laughs> and then Matt, and then Matt's piped up and said, "Well, hey, maybe their schools are as bad as ours." <laughs> but uh, then there are gratuitous shots of Sam Jackson making out with his hot wife yes, throughout the film. He loves making out with his hot wife. Yeah, I, I really can't stress gratuitous enough. The scene is basically over every single time, and then he says, "All right, come here, baby." Yep. And then it's like twelve seconds of them vigorously <laughs> yeah. uh, necking. Then there's a scene where uh, Soldier Man now works as a ticket guy in a movie theater. And Jessica Biel goes to see a movie and they start chatting because, you know, they were both over there. Yeah. And then they're having a chat about, you know, like being among civilians again. And she says, I quote, uh, everyone over here is sipping their Frappuccinos from Starbucks. Oh, driving their gas guzzling SUVs is yes. the first line. Yes, that's another one. And you're just thinking, wow, what are they trying to get at here? Well, they're trying they're trying to they're trying to say that there is a a a alienation between people who have served in the military, especially uh, actively during a war zone, and civilians. And that's true, but it's sure. also a very well-worn dichotomy. And also, that's about the most... Uh, that's the most, like, uh, uh, clip art version of <laughs> that distinction you could... It's like they bought that 
like off of a, uh, a, a, the Getty Image website. Yeah. Going to the CIA and getting to meet different people, um, certainly being at the building is something that I've always wanted to do. I think another thing we should um, keep in mind while we're talking about this, for listeners who may not be aware, the CIA and the Defense Department in particular have a long history of working with Hollywood in order to present in cinema a favorable portrait of the military. It's not even always a pro-war message, but definitely a pro-military message. And basically what happens is, in order to get access to accurate military locations or hardware or representations in general, you know, from the script, you need to play ball and you need to make script alterations that they ask for. Uh, there have been characters that have been changed, plot points that have been changed because they need to make sure that if they're helping out that the military is being presented in a favorable way. That's why, you know, with America, we, we don't need a uh, old fashioned style censorship uh, entity, you know, that you think of in, in authoritarian countries is because we do the censoring during the production, so we don't have to ban it or, uh, you know, uh, cut it up after. So um, that was not true of The Hurt Locker, for example, but it was true in the uh, follow-up that both, both Mark Ball and Catherine Bigelow did, Zero Dark Thirty. And not just war movies. I mean, the Transformers movies are like an industry for for the Pentagon in and oh, of yeah. themselves. They show off all the new hardware. You, yeah. you say we don't need an F-35. What if the Decepticons show up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd hate to imagine what if the Decepticons got a hold of the F-35. <laughs> oh, dear God. What, what destruction they could wreak with it. So began the war. A war that ravaged our planet until it was consumed by death. And the cube was lost to the far reaches of space. All right, so... As we close out here, let's mention a couple movies about Iraq that we actually like. Um, and by all means, if we have missed uh, any good movies about the Iraq War, we were talking mostly about American ones. And, uh, there must, there might be, you know, a good, good foreign film or, or two out there about it. Although I've seen a couple and they weren't that good. Uh, drop us a line. Get in touch at blowbackpod at gmail.com and uh, maybe we'll watch them. But for now, let's talk about these two. One of them is, I think, a really good movie. And the other is maybe not a great movie, but it is compelling and misunderstood and, and uh, maligned. The first is The Guest. Can I help you? Mrs. Peterson? Yes? My name is David. Mrs. Peterson, I, uh, I knew your son, Caleb. I was with him when he died came out 2014, the same year as American Sniper. And uh, full disclosure, uh, it was written by a buddy of mine, um, Simon Barrett. Matt, I think you know Simon too. Matt, uh, tell us about The Guest. Yeah, so it's about a family whose son is killed in Iraq, and they're dr grieving, and there's a couple of younger, like, teenage girl and a teenage boy, and, and the, the parents, and they're all very sad. And then a handsome young man comes to their home claiming to have been someone who... Uh, served with their son and who was told to come see them uh, if the son died and they kind of take him in almost unconsciously as a replacement for their son uh, and then it's slowly revealed over the course of the film that he is the product of some sort of government uh, like <clears throat> genetic engineering program or something to create like the ultimate weapon uh, and that eventually he snaps on and he becomes an unstoppable murdering machine. <laughs> well, I think he's on the whole time, isn't he? Or is, yeah, but he's. I think he's like try. I don't know. I, I kind of take the beginning of that movie as him like trying to do something nice, but not really being able to do anything other than his programming over time. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and we are kind of spoiling it, but it's still really worth your time to to go see it. Absolutely, mm -hmm. um, it's a great movie. And one thing I like about it is on the political side although i should say none of us three here subscribe to the idea that you should only be watching things that validate your particular yeah. politics it's just you know good luck living your life that way but it is a fact that most of these movies that deal with this kind of stuff are both politically brain dead and also very bad so to find a, a good movie that has an interesting point to make is really refreshing and with the guest what i mean is that it takes the, the monster, you know, is this, this American foot soldier who's usually responsible for 
uh, terrorizing people over there, you know, Iraqis or, or Afghans. And the whole conceit is that you drop him in a small American town and that line between us and them is obliterated, which is pretty great, especially because it does it explicitly, you know, f- as framing him as a veteran of the Iraq war who received all of the kind of fawning treatment, both by the family and, and, the, and the town. So check it out. It's also got a good synthwave soundtrack before that was cool. Yes, they were leading edge on that. Everyone copied that for a yeah. while. Yeah. Second film we got here is Southland Tales. My name is Pilot Abilene, and I'm a veteran of the war in Iraq. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of Boxer Santeros and his journey down the road not taken. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. 2008, directed by Richard Kelly. And Matt, you and I talked a long time ago, I think when I was still at Chapo, about doing something about this. Yeah, we still haven't done that. Written and directed by Richard Kelly, who uh, made Donnie Darko in 2001 and then this came out in 2006 and it was his you know tough sophomore album it was very ambitious it's over ambitious it doesn't really totally succeed but i think especially the first half is very fun and and compelling well it's the plot is like kind of a mess but i I will say the thing that like the movie has and that what i what i've loved about it from the first time i saw it like years ago was that it has like kind of like a hyperbolic version of everything that like the Bush administration was doing, you know, like the idea of, you know, of, of fingerprinting becoming like the thing that everybody had to use to get into their bank accounts or whatever. Like, Oh, like the, like, like, wow, we do that now. It doesn't feel like black mirror. It feels more like it's some kind of, you know, like camp or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, it's very, so it's, yeah, it's not, it's not meant like scoldy in that sort of way. Um, and so it was always kind of like, you know, it, it was very fun to see that kind of hyperbole play out. But the thing is, is that hyperbole also extends to its vision of celebrity and media and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how it deals with the war, especially. Um, but that stuff feels obviously, especially prescient given the whole, you know, uh, present thing. But, but I will say the, the stuff that most appealed to me was just this idea, this sense of like hyperbole as a response to the 2000s, which are, you know, portrayed in the movies that we just watched in this very like deadened kind of way. Um, yeah. Like very like desaturated. There's like no color, no liveliness. Like they're very, it's like a very like dead response to the times. And Southland Tales is sort of in its own way, this kind of like alternate vision of what that moment actually uh, was like. Uh, so much else about that movie is terrible and doesn't work, but I think it really does kind of like it, it presents it in a much more honest kind of way, uh, or at least original. Kind listen, of way. listen to this cast: The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, in I believe his first real you know acting role, Sean William Scott, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Nora Dunn, Janine Garofalo, Wallace Shawn, John Larroquette, John Lovitz, Mandy Moore, Amy Poehler, Miranda Richardson, Will Sasso. Justin Timberlake is actually the narrator. It's packed to the gills. Uh, excuse me, uh, Kevin Smith in old age makeup. <laughs> what I what I respect, what I like, what I, what hold, what sticks with me is specifically the character of Justin Timberlake, and uh, his the the kind of the most memorable scene of that movie, which is a a little mini music video where he lip syncs to the Killer song, all these things that I've done, and. To me, that his portrayal of a veteran dealing with the trauma and guilt of what he'd seen in the war zone, uh, it's the most evocative of the attempts that I have certainly seen out of Iraq to try to do that. All the other ones, uh, you know, in, in, in the full runtime of Home of the Brave or Stop Loss, you don't get as much insight into, you know, like the combination of shame and, and pride and uh, and and like you know, uh, masculine uh, uh, insecurity as you did. It's just in that two minute sequence. Yeah, he Tim, Timberlake is good in in that movie. I think that was also must have been early for his like acting yeah. uh, 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 ambitions. Yeah. So you know, if you, everyone's quarantined right now, if uh, if you got a little bit more free time, hopefully, just pop in this this two and a half hour long bizarre 
thing. It, I'm not going to lie. It doesn't all totally add up, but it, it might yeah, still it be worth it. Yeah, it runs out of steam as it goes is the problem. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a balloon, just sort of... Yeah. It starts off with, like, I mean, the first thing is a found footage shot of fucking Nuke going off in Texas. That's cool. Uh, and then it just sort of, like, loses all of its energy as it goes. But especially the first half is very uh, enter- en- engaging. Yeah. Watch the first half. And then if you're sufficiently stimulated or intoxicated or whatever, you might you might finish it. Um, I-, I do like at the end when Wallace Shawn... Uh, is a voguing. He is a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. He's the best part of the movie. Yeah, his character's name is uh, Baron von Westphalen, which for the uh, the real heads out there gives you some clues about where he stands in the movie's uh, you know triangle between the government and the the, the neo Marxist. Yeah, yes. the neo Marxists. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a very silly movie, but I think unfairly maligned. Yeah. All right, I want to say thanks to Matt for coming on and uh, talking talking Iraq movies with us. Sure, thank you for having us. And Noah and I will be back next week or whenever you're listening to this next time with another guest and another bonus episode. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe, stay frosty. Bye. Bye. I got so, but I'm not a soldier. Soul, but I'm not a soldier. I got soul.